Welcome to With Relish on the Headstuff Podcast Network. If this is your first time listening in, welcome to the show. We're a fortnightly food podcast focusing on all things that are great in the Irish food industry. I'm Aoife Allen. And I'm Harry Colley. In this episode, we're talking to Deirdre McCafferty, who was a real trailblazer in the Irish vegan and vegetarian scene. Deirdre has some really interesting positive insights as to why a plant-based diet can be a great alternative to a meat diet. She does. She does. Um, we're also going to talk to Anna Rotore, who is a PhD student at DIT. She's going to tell us a bit about alternatives to meat that might make your skin crawl. What's the word for it? Etymophy. I know. Etym- etym- I don't know the we word for it. We should look that up. We should look that up and yeah. then we'll know it for sure. But, but yeah. that's her field of study. Her field of study and it's, yeah. It's crunchy. <laughs> <laughs> and then as well, I went out to Bray and met a load of fantastic guerrilla gardeners and really, really big characters. I met Annie and I met Hannah and I met Richard. And they're a group of gardeners who go around asking for no permission and just planting edible foods wherever they want to and it's just a, a great thing as looking at sustainability on a small local level. Yeah and that's kind of where it has to start really because I've had so many conversations over the years about sustainability not just around food around clothing around electronics just around how we abuse the planet and what most people feel I think is that it's overwhelming so they shut down but I feel that food is actually the one area where you can take really concrete action you like you can't a lot of control over that you, you have, have so much control, control over the food that you're like you don't necessarily have all the control that you want to have over you know no. wearing the clothes that you have you know it's, it's expensive like the, it's to ex- buy very sustainable clothes and it's, it's impossible actually to buy very sustainable electronics because you don't get electronics made in Dublin they're generally made you know those kind of consumer things mm. are made tin very m- far away tin mines in India and things exactly. like that exactly yeah. whereas with food you can have something growing on your balcony or on your windowsill as I have at the moment you can choose um, to buy produce that are only in season so you know you can have a boundary for yourself maybe you only buy Irish Mm. produce or maybe you buy produce produced in the British Isles. Eating with the seasons as well that's another way of really doing it is being you know these are all kind of small steps that you can take I think in terms of like taking greater action about your sustainability and what you know looking at the things that you're doing and how they can be more sustainable. And it might feel like a drop in the ocean or it might feel like an overwhelming problem but when you think about our grandparents' generation, mm. like my granddad was a city guy, uh, lived in Drumcondra, but he had a big kitchen garden that supplemented their diet all through the year. And then my other grandparents in Mullingar um, were almost self-sufficient in terms of food, you know, and they weren't wealthy people at all. They had a couple of pigs, they had I think geese and chickens, and then they would have had a sort of a vegetable patch, and it was almost enough for them to get by on. We're also facing this, you know, massive population boom at the moment, and, you know, city living is I don't know what percentage of people are living in cities. I'm sure there's a stat, but there's lots... <laughs> <laughs> well, more people live in cities in the world now than don't live in cities for the first time ever since. Thanks, that's the stat I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, so we are now an urban population predominantly. Exactly, and so you think about the, the the way that people are living is very different. We're living in smaller spaces. We're living, you know, consuming lots of food in a short amount of time, and all the, you know, it's, it's we're different. Busy, busy. We're yeah. busy, busy, and yeah. the, the 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 attitude has changed towards towards how we're eating and consuming and I think that the culture of consuming has to change somewhat we just have to we just have to assess what's going on and it's a it's something that I always find useful to think about um, because it's very hard to differentiate between these two things but when we think about food products versus food so food products are the things that you generally find on the supermarket shelves they're processed they're packaged food is an orange a food product is you know concentrated orange juice absolutely yeah food is a tomato food product is tomato ketchup I think in only a generation or two we've kind of gone from being food consumers to mass consumers of food products and that is just causing a whopper massive strain on the environment and how do we kind of move back from that 
there's a huge amount of consciousness that needs to be there that just I guess isn't there and yeah. we as chefs who work day in day out with food who are kind of obsessed with food who are very interested in good food and tasty dirty food and mm-hmm. all the different types of food even we have to check ourselves all the time as to where our produce is coming from you know those green beans that come in from Kenya, Kenya and, and Tanzania. Tanzania. They're cash crops and they're not particularly and that was um, a question that beneficial I had, to the environment. That was but, a question that I had recently. I remember talking to you about it and it was just that I was trying to figure out what is the big problem with it? I know that there is a problem with it but I was trying to have that kind of pinned down and the idea of these things just being not sustainable that these things are available like you can buy these things in Ireland all and close round. to you and all year round and this yeah. is the things you can do but this is something that's going on and it's abusing uh, people it's abusing workers and these are large giant farms owned by single companies and yeah. do not benefit the locals etc. I suppose one good way to look at it and one again like a manageable way to think about it is if you can buy a product in Ireland or from Europe in season that's a good way to do it so mm. if you can get green beans for a couple of months in the summer in Ireland from a from a local farm or somewhere relatively close by that's a good way to eat green beans eating them all year round when they've come from Kenya where huge tracts of land like the size of Irish counties mm-hmm. are given over to cash crops run by farmers that are not from Kenya I mean that's not the most sustainable thing now if you took that away overnight you have to be pragmatic about these things too if you took that away overnight that local economy is going to collapse as well so it's more of a, a gradual move away mm-hmm. from reliant on cash crops overseas and back towards kind of the wonderful products that are grown here naturally all year round and just being a bit less spoiled. So that's enough from us. I think we should probably talk to the experts about this. We're just uh, sustainability enthusiasts. Now time to hear from the real pros. (laughs) Sustainability is a word we're all talking about at the moment. The world's population is increasing and we're having to reassess the way we work with and consume food but it's been encouraging to see small and local efforts made, and this week I went out to Bray to meet the team behind Edible Bray. The town's guerrilla gardeners were at hand to show me what hard work and dedication can do to help the matter from the ground up. I'm here with Annie White and Richard Webb and Hannah Quinn, all from Edible Bray. I just wanted to talk to you, Annie, as one of the founders about this. What is Edible Bray? Can you tell us? We're inspired. About 2014, we went to Todd Morden to Incredible Edible, and we saw this lady who was doing these amazing things, just helping and planting food and getting people involved in food production and knowing where food was coming from. And it was always a lot of unemployment and a lot of terrible things happening there. So this was her way. And she just inspired us. So we came back and we thought we'd do something similar in Bray. And uh, we started with the recycling centre. Did a lot of stuff up there, put a lot of fruit trees and things like that. Didn't have as much highlight. And then Tidy Towns were really kind and they said, listen, you can do half the beds here. So we do half the beds here. And then it spread it from there. And this has much more focus a lot more people see it so people ask us questions and they get involved and so we are now we're just on the what's the name of this albert walkway walk. the albert walk and the albert walk is a beautiful um, small lane running from one end of bray to the other and on all sides of it we have got beautiful things growing we've got decorative flowers and we've got beautiful plants i wonder could you tell us what stuff that we've got growing here because what was here originally was just um banks of tarmac and the tidy towns came along and we, we chopped it all up. They got the sleepers from CIE who own the wall mm. and the property beyond. Bray Council provided the topsoil and our members provided the plants. So we've got a whole range of stuff. Um, we've got fruit trees like uh, gooseberries, currants. We've got apples down there. Um, we've got herbs of various kinds. This is the rocket, which is delicious. We've got lemon balm, um, we've got kale, big chunk of kale that the cafe have been using to make soup last year. We have globe artichoke, various herbs and the flowers you can actually use for 
uh, edibles as well. I mean, as useful as all of this stuff is, it's also very beautiful to look at and uh, is only adding to the area. So who can avail of this garden? Who's it for? Everybody. Absolutely um, everybody. Visually. Yeah. Um, largely it is educational to show people what can be grown in a relatively small space. But the idea is that people can come home and uh, grab some herbs and vegetables and take home and cook their meal. Once, once everything gets going, uh, some things grow faster than others. But uh, it's coming on very well. Hannah, would you know what is the best way for people to get involved in a project like this? Turn up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 6.30 every Monday. Um, yeah. Check our Facebook page for yeah. Edible Bray and it tells you where we'll be. We could be here on the Albert Walk or we could be at the Bray Recycling Centre where mm. there is a community garden. Outside the Mermaid Theatre where there's a little harp garden. Up in the Headlands Community Garden which is two big two polytunnels where we propagate seeds and we look after all the little fellas and the little plants and um, we've got a couple of other little places around Bray um, we're looking for more if you wanted to perhaps adopt a spot which needs a bit of love you can we'll provide the plants and you could look after them there and we'll obviously help with advice and manpower and uh, if you wanted to look after some and grow food just in the in the urban areas anywhere you like and as far as red tape goes do you guys come up against much of it or is the council supportive of you using the space yeah um we don't really ask (laughs) (laughs) we tend to find that it's easier to apologize rather than looking for things so we haven't come up against any obstruction we've come up with anything but support so ask for forgiveness rather than permission yeah they've been very good it's not until the albert walk happened with the tidy towns that they saw yeah this can happen this is good and now they're talking about possibly giving us sites along the seafront Mm -hmm and other areas, so that'll be really, really good. The group's work along the Albert Walk is a feast for the eyes, but the beautiful aesthetic plays a secondary role, as the organisation actively encourages you to pick and eat what you wish and as you need. So Hannah, I just spotted you earlier on there, working your way through the garden and eating it raw as it comes. Would you tell us a little bit about what you're eating? Um, Okay, well this is Rocket. Um, It's one of my favourites. Let's have a taste with me. Amazing. It's like much peppery than you get in a supermarket maybe mm-hmm. yeah delicious um there's some little alpine strawberries about to explode here so we've got alpine strawberries and these are just teeny tiny little buds at the moment not really seeing a huge amount on them so the yeah. alpine strawberries are the tiny very flavorful ones are they yeah, yeah. beautiful you've got some lemon balm and some mint over here um i saw sage rec- oh there it is there's some sage so we've got lots of herbs here we can cook with What's that one, Richard? Fennel. Fennel. Even I knew that it was Brown's fennel. So you've got chives now at the moment, and they've just got all their purple flowers around, and they're just looking absolutely fantastic. So another thing that, that Richard was talking about is the non-utilitarian vibes that we've got here. So we're looking at these things which are edible herbs, but they're just fantastic. So here I am just smelling some, like, really, really fresh thyme. Gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Richard, can you tell us a little bit about the Jerusalem artichokes that are going here? This is related to the sunflower, um, and there are two types of artichoke that in common language. This has the big knobbly roots that you make uh, stews and like a, a potato, really. And then at the far end, we've got the globe artichoke, which is the, the one with the big sort of flower bud that um, is a bit of a gourmet food in itself. That's doing very well here. And tell me, are these two kinds of artichokes at all related? They're not. No. 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 Different. So one is a sunflower and the other one is a thistle or something similar? Basically, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
And the one, the one good fact that I have about Jerusalem Irish jokes is that they're not at all from Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, and and the, the name is a bastardization of the word girasol, which is to turn with the sun. And so it's a sunflower. Oh, and so girasol is a sunflower. Like yeah, girasol. And so we look at them now and they look not spectacular, but yeah. the good stuff is happening underneath the soil. That's the bit that we're really interested in. With a number of different locations around the seaside town, it was time to change scenery and head to another location nearby. To you and I, the site may not have drawn too much inspiration, but Annie, Richard and Hannah were all able to see potential in a rough plot. So what we're looking at now is just um, run-down old wall covered in ivy and to most people would you know, be an unattractive site, but here we have got the guerrilla gardeners who um, are seeing this as potential. What was that you just touched, Annie? An egg. <laughs> it looks like a hen's egg. It's too big for it, isn't it? I don't, we don't have hens here. So I don't know whether people are dumping some stuff here, but I think it'd be easy enough to transform this. Mm. Well, not easy enough. It'd be a bit labour-intensive, but it's potentially possible to transform this. So that's what we would do. I'm, I'm not going to ask permission. I'm just going to do it. And if they have a problem, then we can connect with them and talk then. I like your attitude really a lot. It's easy to yes. say no initially, because people are nervous mm-hmm. and they don't know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. So if they see you're only just planting, then they'll be grand. I suppose, it's, it, I, suppose I mean, this is... Not county council space. This is Tesco. So the tough thing with this is that, you know, when there's the invested interests of large corporations about you potentially taking away from their vegetables to be sold, then that's going to be an issue. But then they do have a big sign in the front talking about connecting with community and charity. So we'll call them out on that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. The group rely on goodwill and help from the local community but some nearby businesses are also doing their best to play their part. So we're just walking now. We have left the... Remind me again what the name of that walk, beautiful walk was? Uh, the Albert Walk. The Albert Walk. So we left the Albert Walk in Bray and we're walking up past through the Tesco, which is where we find our spot that could potentially be used. And we're on our way now to another site. So the Wicklow Wolf Brewing Company have given you their leftover... What's now? Hops and barley. Oh, amazing. Mm. Okay. And so that's just used as mulch? Or it's just a, using yeah. as mulch and it goes on our trees and all along the Albert Walk. Incredible. So we're able to take one waste product from a local business and we're able to turn that into something again. Exactly. And, and not only that, it, it, it saved us the labour. Yeah. Big lot. And it looks much better. It looks much more attractive. And it's feeding the soil. Uh, Hannah, tell me, what building are we approaching here now? It's called the um, Brown Bag Building, where Common Ground has set up their co-op, where there's all sorts of things happening, like a market and uh, yoga classes and pottery classes, art classes. There's... There's tons of different things on. I'm going to check the website. Okay. And it's a facility that anybody can rent them very cheap, particularly if you're a member. From what I've seen so far, Edible Bray and its members have a natural talent for making what could be a very unappealing plot of land into a beautifully unique area. The common ground headquarters was no different. Now we're in a room in the building and it's a common room space. It's beautiful old wooden floors, we've got a kitchenette and we're looking now just at one wall with beautiful different coloured uh, kind of mind maps on them and I suppose that's, that's the, the plan for, for new projects. And for, yeah, and where we came from, this is yeah. kind of where we came from, our aims and uh, objectives. Uh, oh, that's the one, that's the history. Oh, I see, okay. Okay, so we encourage people to fill in their memories of Common Ground or whatever and we'd have a book here that people can also add to. And so we're looking at... Uh, um, a, a very small shop, but what we have here is we've got some organic red lentils, we're looking at some yeast extract, uh, black beans, kidney beans, um, what else are we looking at here? 
Uh, this is, uh, um, what is we, this? We connected with that coffee. It's Lino. Uh, he's from Puglio. He does coffee. He's in the new market, so he gives us coffee and olive oil on a regular basis, and we sell it here because we know the we know the producers, we know the quality of it. And that's another new one. That's a Greek one. And then the eggs come from uh, Wicklow hens, happy hens. Okay, so happy hens in Wicklow. They are, and they are indeed happy hens. So people buy things from the shop and they just leave the money there. So it's all based on trust. So there's nobody, no one person manning the shop or looking after it, but we have got just a donation box and prices on all of our products here. The impact that Edible Brain make on a local level is nothing short of inspiring, but the group understand that they are just one cog in the very large machine that is food sustainability. And so I suppose, like, you know, out here in Bray, there's a community of people who are all interested in providing food for people, but then it's also there's a greater community of people around Ireland, and that's a community that you guys are interested in getting involved with. I actually just to kind of, you know, maybe wrap things up or finish this, but, like, what, what do you guys see for the future of Edible Bray? <laughs> edible towns, yes, edible, edible Ireland. Ireland. <laughs> yeah, edible Ireland. Spreading more and more, actually, and getting more and more people involved, particularly the young people, so they know where their food is coming from. I saw blackcurrants from Guatemala the other day. I mean, not very sensible. You know, and just realizing you don't have to package it, you don't have to buy it, you just pick what you want yeah. and share. And yeah, an edible Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so, okay. We'd like to see uh, more schools get involved in school gardening uh, from the educational point of view. So again, children can see where the food comes from and can get involved themselves, uh, get involved in the whole um, food poverty issue through things like Food Cloud and perhaps smaller projects. Um, Have more sites in Bray, um, roll it out to Wicklow as the Garden of Ireland, uh, to other towns and other villages and just demonstrate what can be done. So a recent survey carried out in the UK showed that 56% of people would be opposed to eating insects as an alternative source of protein. A Dublin-based PhD student is now trying to change the stigma attached to insects and food. We're happy to be joined in studio by Anna Rotore, who is currently two years into her research in DIT and is here to convince us that we should be putting more bugs in our diet. Welcome, Anna. We're so fascinated to have you here in studio. So firstly, I'm just interested to know what brought you here from your home in Italy to the Dublin Institute of Technology, uh, Cahabrua Street, to research insects in the human diet. So I've been passionate about the topic for years. Uh, and uh, one day I saw that the IT had a project founded in this, uh, in this topic. The, I knew it was my chance. So even if uh, I had never been to Ireland and uh, I didn't know about food science because my background is environmental science, I applied and I did my best to impress the the professors and I got it. And why is the research into edible insects important to you? Well, I feel that there is a great potential to make a difference uh, in the world's food supply. Uh, The protein sources we are used to represent a big burden for the ecosystems. And why are insects a more sustainable option than traditional livestock? Can you explain a little to us like what difference it would make actually if if insects were adopted more into human diet? Well, insect protein is uh, much more sustainable than protein from other conventional livestock because insects are up to 20 times more efficiently produced when compared uh, with these livestock. This means that uh, to produce the same amount of protein, they consume less water and less food, and they need less space. And also they emit fewer greenhouse gases. 
They also can be fed with food waste, while uh, the traditional livestock uh, is fed with food that we could eat directly. I, I don't want to sound too catastrophic, but mm. uh, we, we have to be also aware of our responsibilities uh, towards the planet and its inhabitants. The world population is expected to rise uh, to 9.7 billion by 2050 and developing countries are shifting towards a meat-based diet and also climate change will lead to a lowering of resources and our food system needs to, to change in favor of more sustainable solutions. Is it difficult to change the stigma associated with insects in the diet? Like, Why are these mental barriers there for us? Insects are associated with the idea of dirt, uh, sometimes even of danger. This is because uh, we are used to see them as a negative, as a threat to crops uh, and uh, nuisance in our houses. We are not used to see them as positive entities uh, which provides food, pollination and precious materials like wax, uh, silk, biomolecules like chitin enzymes. We are not born with this mental barrier. Probably all of us saw a child picking up an insect from the floor and eat it. The mental barrier is induced uh, by our culture later and therefore it can be changed. I also want you to think about this uh, an insect that we find on the floor is not a food. And the same way we wouldn't uh, give a bite to a cow because <laughs> the food... That's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the food needs to be prepared, washed, peeled, cooked. And this is called food processing. Insects are traditionally consumed, roasted or fried in many parts of the world. But researchers now are working on ways to make them appealing for consumers in Western countries. Uh, novel food products uh, will incorporate uh, probably insect flour and insect protein extracts. Where in the world now is it common to see insects or protein derived from insects in the diet? Can you give us some examples? The practice of entomophagy, that means eating insects, uh, has been established on every continent except Antarctica sooner or later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and all tropical continents uh, to this day have certain epicenters of entomophagy such as uh, the American Southwest, uh, Mexico and the Amazon, Central and Southern Africa, Southeast Asia, Thailand and China, and the Aboriginal Australia. Loads then, pretty much everyone yeah, except so Everyone <laughs> except <laughs> Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do health and safety regulations hinder the potential growth in this area? Uh, not exactly. Insect farming uh, and insect processing uh, don't represent particular risks for health and safety. But the fact is that uh, being new, they are not included in the present regulations uh, and this ties the ends of the companies. So you've chosen three specific types of insect to focus on in your research. Can you tell us what they are and why have you focused on those specifically? Well, there are more than 2,000 species of edible insects uh, and I chose three of them uh, which are consumed uh, in three different life stages. Crickets as adults, uh, silkworms uh, as pupae, and mealworms uh, as larvae. They are among the species with the best nutritional values and most suitable conditions of farming and processing. Silkworms uh, are a perfectly edible byproduct of the silk industry, and I like the idea of circular economy. And what challenges have you faced in your research so far? Actually, the same challenges of every other PhD student uh, <laughs> of every other field. <laughs> Uh, learning new techniques, uh, fighting with broken equipment, uh, yeah. finding a <laughs> way to do something that has never been done before. Yeah. And then in terms of your own experience of insects, what insects have you eaten and what is the most delicious insect that you have eaten? Back in Italy, I participated in a cooking event uh, that was uh, taking um, Venetian traditional uh, recipes. 
done with insects. Oh, wow. So oh. I had this uh, risotto with uh, locustos. Ah. And I had a salad with silkworms. Instead, more recently, I went to Food Matters Live, uh, food exhibition in London. Mm. And there were a lot of companies who were giving tastes uh, about insects. Mm. The one that I really liked uh, in that occasion was uh, a fat-bottomed ant. Fat-bottomed <laughs> ant, yes. A big fat-bottomed ant. Exactly. I love that it. Yeah, uh, I want to eat some of that. It's roasted and yeah. it's very similar to bacon, actually. Wow, okay, yeah. cool. So you can't be... The fat-bottomed ant. You can't appreciate ant. ant. You heard it delicious. here first. Yeah, <laughs> on the menu at the Fumbly Cafe next week. Yeah. So when you say it's like bacon, is it is it a similar flavour but with a crunchy texture or? Uh, well, the texture is, is different. Mm. Uh, well, no, they are all crunchy. Yeah. Okay. If you, if you eat them, uh, it's true. Yeah. If you eat them all in a whole, but yeah. Yeah. they're all crunchy. You don't feel like weird, uh, soft, uh, liquid uh, yeah. things. Yeah. But um, actually, we are promoting uh, not the use of insects uh, as in the traditional uh, countries, uh, but a modern use uh, of insects uh, in the form of flour yeah. or protein extracts. And okay. that m- changes completely the taste, the mm. texture, and something that we are more used to. It seems a lot more palatable, yeah. I think, as yes. well, to the Western I diet think in particular. That's <laughs> like yeah. it's, from my experience of eating insects, it's been, um, you know, in Thailand and Southeast Asia, I, you know, ate insects on a, in a street market, and it, was, it felt like it was kind of a place that was set up for tourists mm. and then later on in that trip then I got to kind of eat insects I think in a more real way in a one that wasn't just like you know highlighting the grossness for Westerners yeah. we're like look how disgusting this is it's an insect and it was like yeah. just a crispy crunchy deep fried thing yeah. but I wonder in terms of the West like the way that it's going uh, in terms of um, what's the word for insect eating again? Entomophagy. Entomophagy. So in terms of entomophagy when we're developing this uh, industry is it going to be a high-end thing is it going to be something that's made normal for everybody or is it going to be something that's highly processed foods like a chicken nugget like something that's like mm. you can distance yourself maybe from that thing making a high protein low fat highly processed thing that you thing. wouldn't even recognize yeah. what the original so I think that sometimes uh, um, some company pushes a bit on the weird factor mm-hmm. to try to to get some uh, consumer to, to try it because of uh, because if it it is very particular, mm-hmm. but um, the most of the companies are trying to make it more uh, normal for us. This doesn't have to be a very processed food because to make a insect flour, you just have to oven dry the insect and grind them, and you can use them uh, to make bread to to bake no, normally. Wow. Protein extracts are a bit more um, elaborate. But yeah, we we eat a lot of protein bars or protein shakes, uh, and this is just a way to make the the protein more soluble or um, easy to incorporate in the recipe. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it is <laughs> bad. Yeah. So Anna, you said your background was environmental science, and mm-hmm. this is your PhD study. So obviously, your main concern is with environmental sustainability. Do you think there is a genuine possibility of a decline in animal breeding for protein consumption and it being replaced because you're obviously very close to the research and the thinking around it now. Do you think that this is something that's actually starting to gain traction or hold? Either the number of farmed animals have to diminish yeah. or the number of people because we cannot uh, keep on uh, growing the population uh, yeah. and keep on uh, eating uh, meat mm-hmm. all of Absolutely. us. Yeah. Yeah. So sooner or later we will be forced to eat yeah. less meat 
and uh, it's just good that we start now to think about alternatives and so that we are uh, ready when the time comes and we can find something good and not uh, like an emergency an emergency food uh, that we have to pick up from the street. Uh, I was talking earlier um, about I was traveling in Cambodia a few years ago for work and as with Harry's experience we went to a market in Phnom Penh where deep fried tarantula spiders were available and they kind of looked big and grotesque and hairy. Mm-hmm. I ate one and it was, you know, crunchy legs and then kind was of... Was it just deep fried? Deep fried with chilli oil and garlic, I think. It, Gorgeous. It tasted good. Yeah. You know, it tasted <laughs> like it tasted like chilli oil and garlic, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I like. Yeah. Um, so it tasted good and it, the texture was a little weird, but it wasn't the most unpleasant thing I've ever eaten. It was fine. But I had a conversation with my Khmer colleague who I was there with, a girl called uh, Sanita, and I asked her, was this sort of a local delicacy or was it a traditional food stuff or what was the history behind it? And she said, to the best of her and and I've had a look online and I think this is correct, is that actually people were not eating spiders in Cambodia particularly very much until during the Khmer Rouge when the uh, centre of the country experienced significant famine. Um, so in the late 70s? The, the, yeah, the late yeah. 70s, due to the, the kind of autocratic nature of the rule, um, forced labour, etc. So in one way it was a really really poignant conversation I got a bit of a shock and it was quite yeah. sobering and I felt a bit gross then for having had a novelty experience with something that was actually a relic from oppression from a really dark time because I, really I suppose looking at that you might think that I know the ancient nature of the Khmer Kingdom and you can yeah. think like this place that goes on forever and historically has been at war over the Mekong yeah. Delta with Vietnam and yeah. lost out to it and, and you know it could have been a part of that story Yeah, but, but actually, I think the shocking I th- I thing I thought I was having an interesting <laughs> cultural experience when in fact I was having a very dark cultural a very dark cultural experience <laughs> That, that but, people have been eating insects out of necessity. But also, it, in some ways, it was quite a positive experience in that you realise how adaptable humans are. As Anna said, at some point, the choice will have to be made, yeah. you know, to kind of choose between... It's uh, going to be animals or us, yeah. Animals or us, yeah. <laughs> um, so in that sense, it, it was an example of how adaptable humans are. And mm-hmm. when traditional or typical food sources are, are taken away or fail, people will go to all sorts of lengths yeah. to survive, you know. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. This has been thank you. a yeah. fascinating conversation. Really and I think yeah. our listeners are going to be absolutely buzzing. enthralled Get and it. heading out this for a big insect bite buzzing. of an... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you very much for coming in. We've really enjoyed this. Yeah, fantastic chat. Well, thank you. And yeah. uh, sooner or later, I will have to do sensory analysis for my food products yes. uh, in the IT. Yeah. So be careful if you are walking down Katalbrugge Street. I, you have the chance that I might stop you Great. and try to taste. Invite us in. Yeah. Come in with some examples. Well, I will. We'll be careful because I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. This is no. what we want. Yeah, this brilliant. This is what we want. The weirder, the better. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much, Anna. Thanks thank for you. coming in. Thanks, Mel. Each week on With Relish, we are inviting someone who has made an impact on the Irish food industry to speak with us about their life through food. To continue with the theme of sustainable living, we are delighted to be joined in the studio by a woman who has been at the forefront of Ireland's vegetarian and vegan food scene for over 30 years. Deirdre McCafferty, owner and proprietor of Cornucopia, welcome to In the Kitchen on With Relish. Oh, thank you very much. Mm. It's, I'm delighted to be here. and It's a fabulous name, With Relish. Thank you very much. I keep on forgetting what it's called. That's what it's all about. <laughs> I'm really impressed because it's all about relish. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think I'm just going to start with a bit of a musing about the vegan and vegetarian food scene in Dublin. Recently, I had a friend visiting from Copenhagen and she follows a mostly vegan diet. 
And Harry and I are both, as you know, we're both chefs at the Fumbly Cafe. We think we know the food scene in Dublin and we both kind of scratched our heads a bit as to where to send her to eat. We obviously sent her to Cornucopia. We had a lovely meal there. She came into the Fumbly and ate there during the afternoon one day. And I think she went to the Winding Stair and a few of the restaurants along Capel Street, which generally have a decent vegetarian offering as well. But it's not a huge, broad scene here still, despite... Yeah, amazing, know, isn't it? Really? Why do you think that is? What's what is that about the Irish palate or the Irish appetite? I'm not sure. It's a really good question. I mean, I probably live in a bubble that uh, we live in a world of vegans and vegetarians. Our family is vegan, vegetarian. Um, and we obviously live in this world. It's all absorbing, running cornucopia. You know, we have 45 staff and 150 seats. And wow. it's just a big operation. And we churn out that vegetarian, vegan food. And it's all about running the show. So I suppose I, I live internally in that. Now, however, I do know when I go out into the world, Mm. to eat as I do regularly because I'm a big foodie I look for the vegetarian option and that's not a problem for me usually once or twice it can be disappointing but in general I find that there's an improvement it's no longer just risotto anymore is it are we getting good enough it can be sometimes just the pasta dish, the stir fry. But in the I was at a lovely um, award ceremony and the vegan food was beautiful. The chef made up in uh, Crown Plaza Hotel near the airport. They made a really delicious vegan meal. Then I was at a um, a wedding someplace and I thought it was a bit disappointing. Mm-hmm. I won't say okay. where. So, um, <laughs> you know, kind. it can yeah. be sort of up and down. Yeah. Um, internationally, Um, Particularly in the States, I suppose, there's a growing awareness of the environmental positive impact of plant based foods and human health impact. And the science behind that cannot be denied. So I think more and more as the generation passes, it'll become more middle of the road and vegetarian vegan options will be mainstream. The fact that it hasn't come into the mainstream restaurant scene I think it's probably to do with the recession a bit too I would think that there was a few that closed down during the recession um, usually because their leases were up and the restaurant business is a tough business as you probably know yourself it takes a lot of dedication and I think people in it are not necessarily vegans vegetarians they're more business, business people, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. so To start it and be successful and because it's a lifestyle choice or a philosophical choice, that's a particular combination of that um, philosophy and business skills, which now there's a new vegan butcher's place up in South Circular Road. I think he's doing really well and I love going there myself and he's got faux meats. Mm, So it's supposed to faux fur and it's a very different type of feel about faux meats. I love it. Really? Okay. Because <laughs> I love taste. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I Maybe some people mightn't like us, some vegans, because it's a sort of an imitation of animals. But I think it's too much for people when you come at them with animal cruelty, environmental issues, human health. Just get turned off. Mm. Yeah, so it can you seem to, overwhelming. Absolutely. It can seem overwhelming, yeah. and yet it's really important to to lead people gently towards mm. this new way. I can understand if you're a really aware vegan, it can be very painful for people to think about abattoirs and animal cruelty. And I know a couple of young people, young people in particular, who probably his hearts haven't hardened yet, mm. <laughs> who are very very sad about mm. what happens to animals in industrial production in particular. And it is a 
it's a horrendous thing, really. Yeah. Horrendous, if you really think about it. Whether I think if everybody thought about it, nobody would eat meat, to be honest. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's a million miles away from us. It's but very, very kids, easy to hide yeah. from. Kids, when they're exposed to it, they don't have that protection. They haven't yeah. been hardened yet. And if the alternatives available and if mammy's okay that there's soy milk on the table or, mm. you know, like Linda McCartney sausages or corn or whatever, it's it's easy for kids now to become. So I think yeah. the groundswell will come from the children of today, maybe. Yeah. So I hope that's a very long answer. No, it's <laughs> a very, very, <laughs> very useful answer. Yeah. Just following on from one of your points. Um, so you're talking about a groundswell today, but can you tell us a bit about when you became vegetarian and vegan and what the scene was like then and what inspired that, I suppose, philosophical and lifestyle choice on your part? Well, I was just very lucky, really. I think um, my late husband, Neil, and myself were living in Boston. We were college students. We were sort of always seekers of what's the best way. You know, we were on the left, student radicals, I suppose you would have called us nowadays and um, or even back then. And I was just a bit dissatisfied with the whole scene and I was searching a bit. It just seemed uh, we were living in Boston and we went there in 75 and this was about 1979, I think. And I was just this scene is just a bit negative for me. Mm -hmm. They're just so Mm -hmm. angry all the time. (laughs) I was just getting a bit disillusioned and I just happened. I was working in a gym. Because we were into fitness and exercise and he was into soccer and all that. So I was working in a gym part time and I became interested, fascinated with the idea of well-being because I realised, of course, you have to live in a democracy and you have to have roof over your head and all this kind of stuff that proper politics delivers as opposed to living in a, you know, a, a society like where people are terrorised by the government. So once the basics of that, what is of else is behind well-being? And I realise it's a lot to do with personal responsibility and how you handle your emotions and your level of consciousness and all of this. So I was lucky enough to come across this raw vegan centre, which I just happened to pass on my way to work, wander in. And there was something about it that I thought, this is amazing. This really struck a chord with me and it was very spiritual. It was very uh, sort of, yeah, it had this higher consciousness vibe about it, which I was probably ready for having been Mm -hmm. an atheist for Mm. the previous five years, convinced atheist, Marxist. (laughs) So I was sort of, this is amazing. And I I struck up a friendship with the owner. He was Irish uh, um, extraction and he loved anybody Irish and he's gas. He loved Ireland and anybody Irish. So he said, you should come here. And I said, I could never afford it. And he said, ah, we'll work that out. So (laughs) I went along for a week and it really changed my life it was called Hippocrates it's now in Florida it was based in Boston at the time and Neil was very impressed I used to cycle home to Neil every evening I didn't stay there and I thought Neil we have to become vegetarian and he was like what? I remember his, he said he was very funny whatever you're on I want some of that <laughs> oh, that's beautiful vegetables so, man because <laughs> I was all um, delighted with myself and thought this I just felt amazing I felt about 12 years of now, I was wow. 26, say, maybe yeah. 25, 26. And I was very fit because I had been exercising a lot prior to that, working in a gym. He, I started volunteering there, teaching yoga. I ended up working there anyway. And before coming back to Ireland and was a complete education in everything that people sort of are taking on board now, yeah. 35 years later. You're a very early adopter. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I was really, very lucky yeah. to, yeah. Get, and to get this sort of consciousness and 
to experience living on wheatgrass, green juices, no sugar, no alcohol, no wheat, lots of vegetables, organic juice, lots of blended foods, dehydrated foods, really things that are just on trend now. Yeah. Yeah. And I lived like that for a couple of weeks and I just felt, God, uh, this is just amazing. This is like wonderful. Oh, yeah. So the guests who came were really ill. That was the other thing. Okay. Really ill, walking in the door, practically in wheelchairs and walking out walking straight well yeah well two weeks or three weeks later so that was really incredible to see how if you just take people off all the sugar and all the acid foods and blah blah they just heal the body naturally heals now it's very hard to do that outside of an institutional setting in Mm -hmm. the world we live Mm -hmm. in because we're all addicts including myself hands up like being AA to sugar and wheat and all of these things so that was a transformational experience so after that when we came back to Ireland, we thought a practical thing to do would be open up a health food shop, which we did on Wicklow Street. Mm-hmm. And that's Cornucopia. OK. And that's how it started. And we then we thought, oh, well, maybe we'll do a little bit of food. And as it turned out, Neil had an incredible talent for cooking. He wasn't a trained chef, but he just was really good. It would taste great. And were you aware of that before? Yeah, a little bit from dinner parties okay. in Boston. All of our friends loved when we cooked for, he cooked for them. Yeah. He was very gifted. He just had a gift, but he didn't even know it. Yeah. yeah. This happened. So you know the way some people just have that sugar they they yeah. 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 It was delicious. And then I realised that really you can influence people by flavour more than anything else. It's mm-hmm. like beautiful music, beautiful flavour. That's what I think. And it has all these layers to it. And it's like an orchestra, you know. So we work a lot on flavour in Cornucopia. And I love to talk to chefs about flavour. Yeah. So, so to, to come to today, then it has just been one day at a time after that, really. I mean, unfortunately, he died very suddenly at a very young age. And luckily after that, I had amazing chefs who kept going and they loved this idea of providing this amazing food or beautiful flavour food on a good day now. You know yeah, how yeah, it yeah. goes. No, 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 we know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We all lot. have the best of intentions sometimes. Yeah, but, there's, a yeah. Lot, there's a lot that goes behind that. Totally. There's a lot of support systems. And nowadays you have to have your HACCP and hygiene mm. and health and safety and your financial things yeah. are organised. And, and some of that can take away the spontaneity and magic. And your building yeah. works and your fire regulations and yeah. your, you know, and so a lot of it. There's sometimes a lot of ovens break and equipment. Oh, Floods and leaks and (laughs) all that goes in running Mm. to old fashioned Georgian buildings connected together in 1750 buildings. But they are a bit wonky, you know, and they take a lot of money to to strengthen the floor and electrify them and all Mm. this stuff. So, um, yeah, so it's really nice to come here and talk about what's behind it because that reminds you of why you're doing this I've never run out of inspiration because because of that original experience I had to try and give that to people through food and to improve their sense of well-being and because of that improve the world yeah. I suppose that's what it's about. And because it's vegetarian and vegan, no animals were hurt in the construction of this or in the yeah. filming of this or the running of this restaurant. Yeah. Now, of course, we still have some dairy and we struggle with that and eggs. And what is the morality behind that? Mm-hmm. And should we be fully vegan? Should we not? So it's a constant debate. And yet when people come in, you know, they like our eggs in the morning and our yeah. dairy in the in the coffee but there's very little dairy left yeah okay. but we okay. haven't yet removed it but it's in it the process completely. maybe of phasing it out yeah mm-hmm. I think we're waiting for the world to be ready for that for it yeah. not to be too extreme do you think mm-hmm. the world's almost ready for that compared to when you well opened? Tony Kyo who's our head chef was um 
he had, was in Berlin last week. I haven't talked to him since he came back. And he said, there's 60 vegan restaurants in mm. Berlin. And I said, that sounds like a song, Tony. He just sent me photographs of all these vegan yeah. dishes. And we haven't had a chance to chat about it yet. So I'm sure he's further inspired. When I was more... <laughs> cynical about vegetarianism and veganism I ate in a vegan restaurant in Berlin called Lucky Leak and was blown away by it it was one of those things and I think like I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine last night and I was talking about a dinner that I'm doing later on in the week I'm doing agadashi tofu and immediately he rolls his eyes and he goes oh Jesus tofu do you know what I mean and I was just like <laughs> You don't Wrong. know. Stop. <laughs> like, stop. You know, because this is wait a, and see. Yeah, wait and see. This wait is a legitimate food stuff. This yeah. is not just and some, a delicious food stuff and, and a, a great vehicle for flavors as well. Totally. And I think that there's still, still, there's that attitude. And I think what we were talking about, like the, the bubble earlier. Do you know where we, you know, we have a fumbly bubble that we live in, whereby like everybody yeah. eats fermented food. Of course they do. And then people eat it and they're like, God, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's vinegar cabbage. Do you know? <laughs> yes, and it's good for you. Down the hatch. Down the hatch. Yeah. And I think, I think, just in terms of getting people to that frame of mind so I have told this friend of mine to come to the dinner on Wednesday and hopefully we'll get this person to eat some agadashi tofu and stop moaning about the tofu <laughs> situation yeah <laughs> I think that vegetarianism maybe in the 70s maybe when it was very um, worthy um, might have nothing wrong might have put people off because for years and years and it only stopped about 10 years ago every time there was an article written about cornucopia maybe 15 years ago even if they, there was nobody in the restaurant, which I'm sure there wasn't, wearing patchouli oil and yeah. beads mm. and sandals yeah. and dreadlocks. They were, we were described as that. Just boxing you just off yeah. into a so very alternative yeah. thing. Yeah. That was of people's yeah. views of vegetarians yeah. and eating tofu and brown rice. Both of which are great. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's a bit yeah. like feminism, I yeah. think, in the early days. All bra burners, you know. Yeah. It's just Painting tofu, with the same brush it's tofu easy and bra to, burners. E- yeah. Easy to compartmentalize these people and say and like, oh, that well, they're living an extreme lifestyle. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> an extreme challenging and, the status quo in a tiny way. And there have been funny films like I don't know if you saw about a boy where they had yeah, yeah, yeah. total funny Tony um, Collette was the mother in it yeah right? and yeah. she had the bread killed the duck because yes. it was so hard when yeah. it was thrown into the lake and I suppose <laughs> yeah there was a bit of you know there's a bad name mm-hmm. but I think it's really now becoming trendy and I have a wonderful friend I mentioned her Bernadette Bohan she's helped a lot of people with cancer through vegan food but she never t- she never labels herself she mm-hmm. just says eat more healthy food eat yeah. drink juices eat you know she never says about what you have to exclude yeah. as the, somebody said from Hippocrates it's more difficult to change a person's diet than their religion Wow. So it's really, really deep that. on us. Yeah. People are very attached to because yeah. it's their body chemistry. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's what they're used to. What you mentioned but earlier on about um, you know, like food being like a symphony and there there is the, you know, proof is in the pudding that I think kind of the way to get people on board with this is to show them the results of it and not tell them like all of the negative things mm. about what this is doing to you and your body and the environment and the animals involved with it, but to show them that this it's is a delicious. delicious meal. Like irregardless of its origin, this is absolutely delicious. I know you mentioned earlier that we're we're all kind of addicts to sugar and wheat and so on. Um, can you tell us a bit about any of your food guilty pleasures? Is there anything naughty oh, that you eat from time to time? Lovely. Dark yeah. chocolate. That's a very that's classy good, guilty, good, pleasure. guilty well, pleasure. Really good yeah, dark yeah, yeah, chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Recently, now I have to tell you myself, I always ate wheat and I started to develop a bit of a cough mm. and I went to the GP and blah, blah, blah. And it was really annoying because I couldn't find what it was and I decided I'll give up gluten. Cough went away. Really? Right. Okay. 
and uh, it's very easy to give up gluten because it's a very so many gluten free products. Yeah. Okay. So I not saying it forever. Yeah. Or anything like that, but mm. I was just really amazed, and uh, it was actually my daughter Darina said, "Mom, you know what to do." Why yeah. are you doing that? Yeah. She's studying nutrition in uh, in um, college of natural medicine, and it was just like you know what to do. You were in Hippocrates yeah. for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you just? <laughs> but then it but speaks again to how easy, uh, how difficult it is to change those things that are ingrained. Oh, yeah. You grew up Listen, eating wheat. I can ingrained. be yeah. I can be the worst eater. Now I I don't ever eat um, meat. That's true. But I can slip and just become just eating really mediocre food, mm. if, especially if I'm away from cornucopia, you know. Yeah. And again, it's very easy to do that if you're it's so hard for people because it's not available. So we just we, we, there was one last thing we were mentioning about um, 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 the, the laugh we had over the award for yeah. Oh, yeah. the awards. We were all recently fumbly and cornucopia were ha- in the best casual dining restaurants. Who was the giving? Was that the restaurant or the it Irish restaurant? Irish restaurant, restaurant okay. uh, hospitality awards. I see. So we were both. Um, so congratulations to both of us yeah. on being, on <laughs> but being, wait. being, being runners-up <laughs> finalists. Finalists. Congratulations on being a runner-up. Who won? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I have to say it was Cornucopia, hey. but I was so sure that Fumbly was. I was like the whole table. I was saying that Fumbly's going to win, and then it was Cornucopia. But I'm sure it was neck and neck. So, <laughs> great. Well, so congratulations to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> so thanks very much oh thanks so much for joining us this has been such an interesting conversation really and great, I feel yeah. that it should be a really inspiring conversation for anybody listening I think you said earlier that you felt lucky to know what it feels like to eat such a clean diet and you know that's something that other people can maybe some, aspire towards yes as well. absolutely I mm. think I actually heard some famous person not no a celebrity I should say is that mm. the same thing as a famous person a celebrity <laughs> say that the best high in the world is health Deirdre McCafferty thanks so much for coming in and speaking with us today we've had a fantastic time here with you and hopefully we can take something away from that which can help us with the rest of our lives in some way but we really enjoyed it thank you very much thanks, thanks for so coming nice on. to meet both of you, you thank too. you Thanks for listening in to our second edition of With Relish. We'd like to thank all our guests for taking time out to come on with us. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're a fortnightly podcast, so make sure to check out headstuff.org for our next show. You can listen and download our programmes from iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn and all the usuals. If you like what we're doing, then why not hit subscribe and write us a review. If there's something in the food world you'd like us to delve into, make sure to let us know. You can get in contact with us through our Twitter page, at WithRelishPod, or get in touch through the Headstuff Podcast Network. HPN, the Headstuff Podcast Network. See headstuff.org for more details.